Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When I was a kid, I was a bit obsessed with my older brother, Paul. I was always tagging along after him and his friends, trying to make him laugh, make him proud. We'd play ball hockey for hours on end in my parents' basement. And whenever one of us would score a goal and raise our stick to celebrate, we'd poke a hole in the ceiling. After a while, there were so many holes that my dad made us play on our knees, using mini sticks we got at some tournament. By the end of those nights, our knees were scabbed and raw. But we didn't care. You'd think those nights would be some of my favorite memories of my brother Paul. But the truth is, I only know they happened because that's what I've been told. I don't really remember my brother at all. The McKinnons were the fourth Montreal family this year to bury a relative killed by a police cruiser. It was a tragedy, a horrible accident that took the life of a 14-year-old and one which would have far-reaching implications. There'll be a coroner's inquest as well as a police investigation into his death. I was 10 years old when Paul died. He was 14 when he was hit and killed by a police cruiser outside of school. I remember the moment I found out. I remember my sister's eulogy at his funeral. I remember my mom eating nothing but Melba toast and cheese for months. And I remember the look on the face of the cop who killed him during the years of inquests and trials. But when it comes to memories of Paul himself, alive, everything is just gone. Okay, can I have a camera? I just want to try something. This is Paul McKinnon signing off. Bye-bye, good night. Dead or alive. I'm Alex McKinnon, and this is Sorry About the Kid, a podcast about me trying to get to know my brother 30 years after he was killed and wanting to make sense of how the trauma surrounding Paul's death has shaped the grief and lives of those of us left behind. Chapter 1. Where's Paul? Can you just say a couple things? Testing 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Perfect. Okay. So, Dad, what do you remember most about Paul? Um, I remember his smile. Um... His laugh. Oh, you still remember his laugh? Oh, yeah. Oh, lucky. Um, when he was little, it was like, uh, almost like a little machine gun laugh. He was a, he was a laughing kid. 
He really was a happy guy. Generally, he had a sweaty smell. Because <laughs> he was active. He was a very active fella. He uh, didn't sit still a lot. Even though Paul and I were really close, it was only a week or two after he died that I started to forget things about him. At first it was his voice, then it was his laugh, and pretty soon it was entire chunks of our life together. Inside jokes, moments we shared, until it was basically all gone. When I called my mom on Paul's birthday this year, she had all these stories about him that I was there for, but have no memory of whatsoever. When we went camping, there used to be a Christian camp, and he sold snakes that he had just collected to the Christians. And then he sold grass to feed the snakes, and it was just grass that he picked up. (laughs) And he had no clue what the snakes liked to eat, but he sold them a bunch of grass. My sister Sarah's memories also seem closer to the surface than mine. She was 16 when Paul died, and had more years with him. Before I came along, the two of them were a team. Well, we were a team in that I was in charge, (laughs) (laughs) and then (laughs) I had an assistant. (laughs) I had a sidekick and gopher. (laughs) And you were a kid who really liked memories a lot, which is kind of funny that you're doing this podcast now. So you'd often say, oh, do you remember when we went to blah, blah, Like you liked to kind of bring up happy memories as a kid. My family and I talk about Paul pretty often. There are pictures of him all over the place, and my daughter and my sister's kids know all about Uncle Paul. But sometimes I feel I'm grieving something the rest of my family is not a void rather than a person. And not only have I forgotten Paul, but I've forgotten pretty much everything before the day he died. That day, I can see play out like a movie inside my head. October 25th, 1990 was a Thursday. And by then, most of the leaves had already fallen in Montreal. Halloween decorations lined the streets, and I'd already decided on my costume, a nun. That was my go-to for a few years running, which I thought was hilarious. I came home from school late that night, and I remember noticing there were more cars parked outside our house than I'd ever seen before. I remember walking up the stairs and my sister opening the door. She grabbed me by the shoulders and led me inside. My mom was sitting on a chair near the hallway. A bunch of my relatives were seated around the edges of the room. Where's Paul? I remember asking. But I think I already knew. Somehow, looking around that room, I knew. My mom walked over to me and said, Alex, a terrible tragedy has happened in our family. Paul is dead. I collapsed on the ground.
I want to know what other people remember about that day. And try to find out why Paul's death has become my strongest connection to him. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. changed a lot. The school, yeah. So this is where he was hit. And you remember it kind of being a day like today, right? Yep. It was yeah, maybe even much. a little warmer. It might have been a little warmer. It was, it was kind of a, a beautiful day, I think, from what I remember. The year he died... Paul was in grade 9 at Loyola, an all-boys high school 20 minutes or so from our house. He had a paper route he'd run each morning before school. Paul used to get up quite early in the morning and deliver his La Presse. And then he'd sit on the swing on the front deck and he'd read the sports page. Then he'd come up and he'd have a shower and he'd go to school. And uh, so this all happened quite early, and I would basically be in bed, maybe reading. And I was sitting in bed reading, and Paul had the bathroom door open, and he was combing his hair, and I saw his reflection in the mirror as he was combing his hair. And then he said, bye, Ma, and left for school. The school bell rang at 2.50 that afternoon, as it always did. Usually, Paul would head into the basement locker rooms to get changed for football practice. He'd get home around 5, have dinner, do homework, maybe go out and play hockey or hang out with friends. This day, though, was different. We stayed late that day because word in the street was that a friend of ours was going to get beaten up by some kids who were older than him. This is Greg, Paul's best friend at Loyola, who would joke around with him in class and sometimes sneak beers with him on the weekends. Paul and I actually hung out after school that day because we wanted to protect this guy. And so Paul and I, you know, milled about the uh, the locker room to see if there was going to be some action and nothing ended up going down. And so, you know, we wandered out of the school. People were milling about. People were coming out of the main building, sitting on the steps, And uh, we were chatting and kind of scanning the buses to figure out who would have to run first, which was, again, a very traditional Loyola High School boy activity. You did your uh, 25 to 50 yard dash from the beginning of that staircase all the way to your bus. Um, 
Paul's bus was across the intersection on the other side, and off he went. And as he was running, he looked over his shoulder at me before he entered into the street. And so what I remember was this police cruiser, it just literally appeared coming past the bus. And um, Paul was crossing, and that's when I saw Paul turning and seeing the car coming at him. And uh, that's when the car impacted. I just remember him flying in the air. A woman in her car waiting at the red light remembers hearing a bang and seeing a rainbow of books flying out of Paul's backpack, arching across the sky. But for Greg, everything went still. What struck me was uh, really the silence of the moment. There was just all of this silence. In the background, I could hear the faint screech of, of you know, tires breaking. And uh, that was it. That white noise of people coming and going was gone. And I dropped my bag and I ran to where he basically, he flew to and found him under the back of a parked car. He had fallen under a car parked on Sherbrook Street and his, his body was under that back bumper. And the students who were there, you know, they, they were kind of lined up on the sidewalk and they were just looking at him. And I just pushed my way through and went right up to him. I remember crouching over and I called to him eyes were closed. He wasn't responsive. And I will never forget this. Um, when I looked at his legs, I could tell that the bones of his legs were pressing through the trousers. And the panic that he was gravely injured just absolutely took over me. I knew enough not to move him. And when I couldn't get him to wake up and I was calling out to him and calling out to him, I ran from him all the way back to Loyola. And I remember tearing into the office at the time and yelling, someone needs to call for an ambulance and someone needs to call Paul's parents. The school secretary called my mom. And uh, she said, uh, Mrs. McKinnon, uh, there's been an accident. Paul's been hurt. And uh, I said, what happened? And she said, I don't know. She said, could you come to the school? Uh, I'm not quite sure what his injuries are. And uh, I had a vision that Paul was like looking very embarrassed, sitting up and maybe had like a broken arm or something. Meanwhile, back at the scene, the ambulance arrived. The school soccer coach remembers getting a group of nearby college boys to lift the car Paul had landed under so the paramedics could pull him out. There was a huge, a big crowd, a big crowd. My mom's friend, Joan, a nurse, remembers getting a call from my mom asking her to go meet her at the school. Joan ended up arriving first. I somehow pushed my way in, 
and saw Paul lying there, and he just looked perfect to me, perfectly fine to me, although he was not responding. But I remember when your mother arrived, they would not let her, they would not let her come to Paul. And I told them, your mother, she has to, she has to. She's strong, she can do this. And they listened to me. And your mother, I, I very luckily was able to speak to him. She spoke to him. Did, did he respond? No, he couldn't respond. No, he did not respond. It's hard to know if he heard it, but I think, he, if anything, he, he might have heard her. I went down and I told him, you're going to be okay. You know, you're, you're a strong boy. You're going to be fine. He didn't look pale or he didn't look, he looked okay. The only thing I did notice was that I saw there was a bulge in the top of his head and it was kind of pulsating. And uh, I wanted to go in the ambulance with him and they said, no, there's, we're going to have to treat him right away. So you follow us to the hospital. By the time I got to the hospital, we went to where they told us to go, and this doctor came out, and she was hysterical. And she was saying, I've never seen anything like this. He, he's lost his foot. I thought, he, he doesn't have a foot. She said his foot was taken off by the, by the uh, something. And I thought, how did I not see that his foot was gone? I mean. He looked fine, except for this bulge in his... And I was right at his feet, and she was hysterical, and she said, it's shattered, he's shattered. My dad was at work when he got the call, saying one of his kids had been injured, and to go to the hospital. When he arrived, he didn't know which one of us had been hurt, because for some reason, Paul had both his Medicare card and mine. But finally, he found his way to the right room. There was quite a few people in the room. I couldn't see Paul. I mean, I, he, I saw the bed he was on and, and so on, but I couldn't get anywhere near. He was bandaged up. I could see a bit of his nose and face, but that's all. All sorts of things go through your mind, but uh, you pray to God, you think, pray to anything. My parents were told to stay in the waiting area while Paul went in for surgery. The doctor came out and he said, I don't think I can do anything for him. And I said, oh yes, you can, you know, you can. I have confidence in you, don't worry. And he kind of said, you know, he's he'll never see again, he's blind. And um, so then he asked if we would be willing to donate any of his organs. And I said, no, I, I, you're going you're gonna to save him. Because I, I didn't want them to go in there and just... And they said, you have to make up your mind now because um, 
They can't do it after you die. And I couldn't do it. I said, no, I, he, I think there's a chance. He's very strong. And they came out shortly after and said that he was gone. It felt like something was being torn out of my brain. I had a headache like you couldn't believe. And it just felt like something was pulling it, coming, just being torn out. It's just somebody just tore a piece of flesh out. Never felt the same after that. What was that like, leaving the hospital? I sort of remember it being like we didn't want to leave Paul there. Both of us. I remember talking with your mom and we both felt, no, no, we can't leave him here. We can't leave him here. We, we sat there and sat there, but then I knew that you and Sarah would be coming home from school and we had to get home for you and Sarah. And then we drove home. I drove your parents home. Your mom and dad were in the back seat, quiet, as I recall, quite quiet, with maybe an occasional sob, but very quiet. A hard, uh, a quiet drive home. It was unreal. We walked in and Paul's running shoes were still on the porch. We left them there for months. So you got home, and do you, who told Sarah? Was it you or Mom? I think we both did. When I came home, I remember the first thing I said was, where's Paul? I remember you saying that. Where's Paul? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just remember kind of collapsing. It's hard to describe how I felt at the moment my parents told me about Paul. I fell to the ground, I know that. But not because I fainted or couldn't hold myself up anymore. I just thought that's what I should do. Or more like, I didn't know what else to do. But I remember looking at you just thinking, you were just bewildered, you just, you were crying, it, was, it just was horrible. Not long after, I was in the kitchen when the phone rang. It was Paul's old girlfriend, Zoe. She wanted to see if he could sneak her and some friends into the upcoming dance at his school. Do you remember this part? I do. Yeah. So I had the very unfortunate timing when I called you and I said, you know, hi, Alex, is Paul there? And you said, no, he's not. And I was like, really? And you said... No, he's not. He's dead. 
you said it really loudly. I mean, you must have been so angry. And you hung up. Um, and and then I called back. And somebody in your family, I think it was your dad, explained the whole thing to me. And it was so horrible. And I felt so bad for calling. Um, but, you know, I called because that's who Paul was. He was the guy who would get you in to the fun dance. And um, it was a horrible day. It was so unnecessary, you know. Word of Paul's death soon spread. There were rumors some of his friends went out and overturned a cop car that night. Others took the news differently. It was on the news, and they had announced it. Um, Some accident, somebody got hit by a car in front of Loyola. This is Benji one of Paul's childhood best friends, who we used to play hockey with on our knees in the basement. And my first thought was, oh my God, I can't believe it. I wonder if Paul saw what happened. So that, so that, <clears throat> so that was on the radio. And uh, so I think Joey called me and told me, did you hear what happened? Joey was like bawling and I just, I, I didn't understand what I just didn't understand what was happening. And that night, I think I went to hockey anyways. I was just... I was just frozen. I just didn't didn't know what was going on. And I remember crying at the hockey rink. And I played the game, but I, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably just skating circles the whole time. Later that night, I'm not exactly sure when, two police officers arrived at our house, carrying a brown cardboard box. My sister answered the door. They weren't the cops who'd hit Paul, but she still wouldn't let them in. They dropped the box at her feet and said, Sorry about the kid. We're just doing our job. My sister opened the box. It was filled with Paul's blood-soaked clothes. It was like his leather jacket. It was all torn up. There was blood on it. And it was... Yeah. You know, I just sat next to that box for an awfully long time. You and Sarah did not want to go upstairs that night. You slept on the living room floor. And I went upstairs, and I remember I didn't even know I was doing it. I spent the night screaming, just screaming. Did you sleep that night? No, I screamed all night. I didn't even know I was screaming. It was physical pain. It was like, it was like being in physical pain. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't, I just screamed in the days after Paul's death a lot of people were coming by the house some of them we didn't even know maybe they'd heard about the accident on the news there was one couple there who'd lost their son 20 years earlier they tried comforting my parents telling them that even though they still think about him every day 
It does get easier. It does get better. I remember watching them from a few feet away and thinking, wow, 20 years. How can you still be so hung up on them after 20 years? Get over it. I think about that couple often. About how naive I was. It's been 30 years since Paul died, and here I am. Still processing it all. And I can't help but think about the cops coming to our house that first night. And how everything that happened afterwards. The media blitz. The fight to uncover the facts. The years of legal turmoil. How did I let it all erase my memories of my brother? And how do I get them back? On the next episode of Sorry About the Kid. I did not want to forget. I didn't think I'd be able to take the shock again if I ever forgot for a moment, if I ever fell asleep and forgot. So I woke up every morning and said, Paul's dead. Because I think in some ways, it took your mom and dad away too. You know what I mean? They're never the same. There is no way that a person is the same after they lose a child. You're not the same. Sorry About the Kid is written and produced by me, Alex McKinnon, and Mira Burt-Wintonic. Editing and sound design by Mira Burt-Wintonic. Jeff Turner is our senior producer. Our theme music is by David Drury. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our associate producer is Caitlin Taylor. Our logo is by Mathilde Corbet. R.F. Nurani is executive producer. Follow Story About the Kid on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, tell your friends about it. It would mean a lot to us. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.